Hi, Alicia. <laughs> Hi, David. Can we start with a disclaimer? What I, how many disclaimers could we possibly <laughs> need? Um, hi, everyone. This is the Machination Log spinoff of CISPROC that I have not come up with a name for, but basically uh, Alicia presented a intriguing conspiracy in the form of a rumor in the form of the end of a paragraph in a book she was reading called Carbon Democracy. Alicia, take it away. Okay. What part should I start with? The disclaimer or the conspiracy? Um, start as far back as you need to. I, actually, no. Let's go with uh, let's go with actually outlining what the um, what the conspiracy is first, and then we can disclaim from there. Okay. So there's a province uh, that was at the time in Austria Hungary where um, oil was discovered, and it became a major oil producing region. Um, it was the industry there was like hampered by various things like. Uh, the lack of transportation capability made uh, certain kinds of production expensive. And um, one of the things that ended up happening over time is there were a number of strikes. The biggest one was in uh, 1904. And in um, Carbon Democracy, when it's describing the strikes, he uh, makes a note that it worked out so well for um, Standard Oil that uh, people were spreading rumors, apparently, that Standard Oil had started the strike on purpose or was funding the strike or was connected to the strike in some way in order to have an, uh, a monopoly in this region. Which, and up lower to this competition point, they had been, from small producers. Yeah, which they had been building outside of this region prior to. Uh, 1904 is a bit on the... is is. The first year, and I think this might actually be important in our final analysis, uh, is the first year that dividend payouts from Standard Oil decreased since its formation. So <laughs> uh, the international market starts mattering here in an important way. But uh, I guess as far as disclaimers go, we uh, we set out to determine um, in the laziest possible academic way uh, whether or not this rumor <laughs> has any validity to it. Um, I, my... My route to this was basically to probe into the psychology of the man who would be responsible for this in some sense, uh, a one John Rockefeller, some of you may be familiar with, uh, literally the okay. richest man of all time um, within the span of time in which wealth has been reasonably measurable. Um, he uh, he ran Standard Oil. He was I watched not- like half a documentary on him. I- oh, go ahead. No, 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 no. Keep your information. Feel, feel free to. Feel free to throw blurbs in on this, but he's um he wasn't actually running the place in 1904, but he was all he was not only the majority stakeholder but the president. Um, while uh, his uh, his successor, I'm going to blank on his successor's name, but that's okay because no one knows anything about the guy anyway. Uh, he was uh, he was a suit. The um, but yeah, so. I did a bunch of investigation into his psyche and into what Standard Oil was up until 1904, and I did that by reading through a, uh, funny enough, something called The History of the Standard Oil Company, which was a muckrake, um, was a good, that's a good robber baron era term for uh, journalism that <laughs> takes down the man, uh, done by Ida Tarbell. Um, it is a comprehensive look at the shenanigans of that era regarding 
Standard Oil and its rise to power, and man, is it inexorable. Uh, but we'll get into that in a minute. Alicia, what did you do in prep? Um, I read a book called Oil Empire, Visions of Prosperity in Austrian Galicia, um, which was the citation for um, the rumors. And I watched like probably half a documentary about oil. So that was, <laughs> so, so you, <laughs> that you, was my preparation. Yeah, so you covered the region itself. So yeah. basically you covered the environment in which it happened directly and I investigated what would have been the cause. And we're going to attempt to ramrod so those well. two things together. Yeah, perfect. Perfect. Yeah. But I do think we both have a suspicion out of the gate. Um, I feel like you're leaning no, and I, I'm also strongly leaning no. Yeah, I'm leaning no. And um, I don't know, do you want to... I, I, think it's, I think it's probably better to set up Galicia to the extent that we can first, so why don't you take it? Ooh, okay. So um, this is what I want the disclaimer for, is that I haven't... I've, feel like we're thoroughly underqualified to talk about any of this. That's and fine. I feel like I should have spent a couple of years reading about this in order to be able to do it. Um, but um, so when oil was discovered, it was a really exciting time for this region, which is, uh, again, a province of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. So in uh, previous attempts to create, uh, to like lower the risk of revolt in these various provinces in Austria-Hungary, they had done things like um, parceling land out so that it belonged to many, many different people. Um, and people lived like a mostly agrarian lifestyle on the on land that they owned. So the peasants who worked the land owned the land. Um so when oil was discovered, that obviously made it a really exciting um, time to own land in the region. And all of the speculation and sales that happened in America, the wildly fluctuating value of uh, parcels of land also happened in uh, Galicia, which is the province that we're talking about. There's there's a weird um, it, I don't want to call it a caveat, but it's it's a curiosity of uh, Austria, I believe, that land rights entitled you to the oil underneath the land in a way that actually was not practiced virtually anywhere else besides the United States. I'm forgetting specifically where I read that, but the um, it there's there's a big difference in the way that America and ironically enough, the exact region we're talking about handled this, where if you were a farmer and there happened to be oil nearby, it was at your discretion to take advantage of it. Yeah, rather than it belonging to the state. Although one of the reasons that it took Standard Oil a long time to enter the region is that like the rules about mineral rights um, kept changing. And that was actually an interesting thing for me about reading it, um, was thinking about whether or not you own the land, like, all the way up and down. You know, what part of the land do you own when you own a piece of land and that kind of stuff? Especially because um, the wells are connected. Um, like, the well is, like, one big thing underground, right? Yeah. So when you drill in one place... Um, you know, in the in the book, it was describing how there was this pressure that, um, like, uh, the first person to strike oil in a little area would get, like, a huge swell of oil. But then as more people drill, there's more of a, uh, uh, the pressure kind of goes down because it's being released at multiple points and you require a lot more uh, to bring the oil out of the ground. 
yeah, it, it acts a lot like a water aquifer where it's, I mean, you're technically, like yeah. you said, the pressure, the actual latent pressure of the entire reservoir, wherever it happens to lie, is um, is decreasing because it's not like there's just a patch of oil. There's like a bed of oil. Mm-hmm. So the people there had, uh, so when um, people started trying to sell their land to make money, um, they uh, divided their land into smaller and smaller pieces. So you get things that were like about the size of a football field or like maybe a little bigger. And like that would be like the plot of land that you sold, um, which is really just like far too small for an oil operation. Sure. And uh, part of the reason... <laughs> Part of the reason that the circumstances got so dangerous was uh, that there were a lot of people building oil wells like right next to each other. And there wasn't really good standardized equipment that they were using to get it out of the ground. So because a lot of people had their own farms and they were only coming to work in, in the oil wells um, when they weren't working at their uh, on the farms, like in the winter or, you know, another time where there's not a lot of farm work, they were actually just going there to just, like, make some money. A lot of people just on the side. It wasn't really their real job. So things that were some of the horrifying human rights, like, issues and abuses of, like, or workers' rights issues and abuses of not having housing set up for workers or not having adequate housing set up for workers and all of that kind of thing. Like those were a problem, uh, partly because those, the workers had their stuff taken care of. So the companies, the small oil companies didn't provide things, didn't provide a lot of safety mechanisms and they didn't provide a lot of things like housing, um, because it wasn't really anybody's primary form of income. Um, it was kind of a secondary job that people were doing because they wanted to ha get drunk and have fun uh, and make money rather than um, rather than it being their primary form of um, sustenance or their primary way of supporting themselves. However, over time, uh, that also changes as, um, you know, there are a lot of industry shocks that um that happened after the initial boom. So oil oil is struck. There's an initial oil boom. Everybody's selling their land and trying to buy equipment and trying to get in on this like uh, oil, like endless money under the ground kind of uh, boom. And all of those people end up losing their uh, their land and their fortune. What time period is this? I wish I could tell you off the top of my head, but I inadequately prepared for this. But this happens, um, I think this happens in the very late uh, 19th century. So, right. Yeah, something like that. Um, but it also, I mean, it does happen over time, like from the time oil is struck kind of forward towards 1904. Um, there is an increase in, um, or more and fewer and fewer people have access to their own land. Then there is an organized, uh, wax worker strike before, uh, 1904, uh, for very, because the wax industry has a lot of, uh, layoffs, right? Uh, um, or they like get rid of most of their, the wax industry has some kind of shock 
before 1904. And um, I think I think it's like at the turn of the century. So like at the beginning of the 20th century, the, there's some kind of shock in the wax industry and the people um, who get um, laid off are the people who come in late. And the people who are there just kind of fucking around, the people who leave in the middle of the shift, the people who don't need it to support themselves, in other words, like the people who are most there for fun are the people who get laid off. So there become there is a wha- organized uh, strike of wax workers previously, because this is in Western Galicia, or sorry, Eastern Galicia, which is now Western Ukraine. And um, in... Western Galicia, there was more of an industry of artisans and uh, like people who made boots and, you know, those kinds of things. Uh, Those people would go on strike way more regularly than the people in Eastern Galicia um, who were much less interested in in striking. And do you think think that's just an urban versus rural cultural phenomenon? Because that's kind of what it sounds like. I mean, is that too simplistic a read on the difference between the two regions? I think so. I mean, my my feeling is that it has more to do with who owns land and who doesn't own land. Um, because as people stop owning land, they start uh, organizing strikes because they don't have this alternative form of um, sustenance. Okay. So I think a big part of it is like whether or not you have other options. When you live in a city and you are an artisan and you're selling a specific skill that you have or running a specific business that you have and you need to change conditions for your industry or for people in your class, it kind of makes more sense to strike than it does when when you have an alternative means. I can buy that. Uh, Is there anything else you want to set up? on uh on the path to 1904 i think those are the really critical um pieces of it one of the interesting things is that the social is um oh shit i thought i did my part by silencing this phone but apparently not (laughs) (laughs) Uh, one of the interesting things is that um is kind of the socialist presence the socialists were apparently better supported and like allowed to organize um, in a way that they weren't allowed to organize in other places in the region. Um, Cause obviously this is right leading into world war one where there's this really in the, the um, revolution right. in Russia. Um, there's a lot of tension between working class people and um wealthy people in the ruling class in most of the European countries in this time is at this time, they are very concerned with uh, the people organizing and um, organizing either for democracy or um, to get more power in the hands of uh, the people in other ways. And or making production labor difficult in their countries. And um, it's just a giant uh, concern for people all over Europe at the time. Um, In addition to things like masculinity being threatened. Oh, my God, were they afraid about that? About the feminization of their men. Oh, oh, there's just where's that. Where does that come from? Well, there aren't enough wars. 
Oh, okay. Well, they're yeah. about to fix that and, like nobody's business. So just hold on that entire yeah. region. You get your cover. Yeah. Yeah. You can just chill just a little bit and <laughs> you're going to get it. There's, um, uh, you know, there's some, it's an interesting cultural moment in the ways that it parallels our contemporary uh, time where there, there is, I feel like the cultural war really starts around this era. Um, and because most countries have like an industrial uh, part or they're scrambling to get uh, industry to come to their company uh, country, they have, um, they have like the beginnings of um, what we conceive of as modern life. Sure. I mean, we're talking about oil. <laughs> we're talking about what effectively generates modern life. So, it would make sense that one follows the other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, so it's it's a very interesting time. in um, And uh, the socialists in Austria-Hungary are in an interesting uh, position. And in fact, the rest of the socialists made fun of them for being so in love with their monarchy and the government there and having such a cozy relationship. Um they were able to speak really openly. So they spread a lot of information on how to organize and how to strike. Yeah. That, that seems like Um, it plays a major role in the proclivity of that region to do that. Because as, as, as we'll see, nothing of the sort is happening across the pond. Yeah. I don't know as much about that. So I didn't really, I didn't really find the contrasting region in America, is there a place in America where you would draw a clear parallel? I mean, if you're done setting it up, we can we can do that segue. Yeah. yeah. Um, America yeah, got America got started on this stuff a little bit earlier. Um, I'm not entirely sure just what elements of the first and second industrial revolutions were responsible for this, but somewhere in the 1870s, oil started to pick up, and uh, people started in the same way as the gold rushes before and after this um people just started claiming land and building oil wells as fast as they could either digging them by hand or finally actually industrializing them at some point but not too long after that um you start getting major refineries and one of those was standard oil run by john d rockefeller and i won't go into the entire history of them because that's not necessarily what's important uh what is important is that john rockefeller is I don't want to call him a man of dualities because he really does have a single purpose, which is to be the profit generator of his time. Um, he does an absolutely oh, an impeccable job of collaborating with what who he needs to and browbeating who he doesn't until he is in control of absolutely everything. Um, he starts off. His first major play is to create a union of the refineries in Cleveland where he is founded um, in order to get better prices on um, to get better prices on crude oil. That looks like a failure, but is actually not a failure because when the union breaks up, it turns out that Standard Oil owns 90 percent of the plants now that were part of that union. He then forms another <laughs> clandestine organization. And this one I thought was going to lead to me. um I thought for sure this was going to just be the smoking gun. I need to see if I can find this. He founded an organization called the Southern 
Improvement Company or the South Improvement Company, um, which was in its charter designed to be the cloak and dagger organization that we all assume like the Bohemian Grove is supposed to be just on (laughs) just for everything. And I'll give you a taste of this. This was a charter. Now, there's there's some potential dubiousness in what is written here because the oil men, as they're called by Ida Tarbell, uh, that discovered this charter um, during an investigation at the highest possible levels when it was demanded of them. The South Improvement Company's contract uh, goes thus, or its charter goes thus. And mind, this was not public knowledge because the South Improvement Company was effectively not public knowledge until they were forced by the courts to reveal it. Uh, Quote, the South Improvement Company can own, contract, or operate any work, business, or traffic, save only banking, may hold and transfer any kind of property, real or personal, hold and operate on any leased property, oil territory, for instance, make any kind of contract, deal in stock, securities, and funds, loan its credit, guarantee anyone's paper, manipulate any industry, may seize upon the lands of any other parties for railroading or any other purpose, may absorb the improvements, property, or franchises of any other company, ad infinitum, may fix the fares, tolls, or freights to be charged on lines of transit operated by it or on any business it gives to any other company or line without limit. Its capital stock can be expanded or watered down at limited, at liberty. Sorry, It can change its name and location at pleasure. It can go anywhere and do almost anything. It is not a Pennsylvania <laughs> corporation only. It can, so far as in, these enactments are valid, or are confirmed by other legislatures, operate in any state or territory. Its directors must only be citizens of the United States, not necessarily of Pennsylvania. It is responsible to no one. Its stockholders are only liable to the amount of their stock in it. Its directors, when wielding all the princely powers of the corporation, are also responsible only to the amount of their stock in it. It may control the business of the continent and hold and transfer millions of property and yet be rotten to the core. It is responsible to no one, which it's now said three times, uh, makes Mm -hmm. no reports of its acts or financial condition. Its records and deliberations are secret, its capital illimitable, its object unknown. It can be here today, tomorrow, away. its Its domain is the whole country, its business, everything. Now it is petroleum, it grasps and monopolizes. Next year it may be iron, coal, cotton, or breadstuffs. Their landsmen granted perpetual letters of mark to prey upon all commerce everywhere, unquote. So basically, this is the official assessment of the purpose of the South Improvement Company uh, by the federal government. So mm-hmm. uh, they they broke it up, obviously, uh, to the extent that that was possible, given that there was essentially no paper trail for it whatsoever. Um, but this gives you an idea of what Rockefeller was willing to endorse, But here's the thing that makes it weird is that this is all transactional shenanigans. Everything Rockefeller did involved gouging on prices. It involved securing rebates with railroads so that he could get, uh, for example, the first instance, the first intersection that he has with foreign powers uh, falls into this next category of transportation. Uh, Europe starts building their own refineries because after a while, oil uh, refined oil is seen and kerosene in particular is very popular. Um, these things are seen as uh, b- worth investing in at an industrial level and Europe starts doing so. But the problem is that most oil is from the United States. The United States is where most of the oil is coming out of. Russia doesn't come online until the late 80s. 
Um, and even then their production yeah. is spotty. Um, whereas American oil by now is running like a Swiss watch to use a completely inappropriate geopolitical term. <laughs> the, um, but, but Europe can build factories where they can get crude oil turned into the petroleum products they need at a low quality, but a good enough quality for the machinery they're using that it's okay. Like they're not going to beat America's America's oil is, and in particular Rockefeller's oil was renowned for being like, he wasn't just a jerk. Like his, his operation was in fact tremendously efficient and effective. Like the stuff he was putting out was not, was incomparable even in the States. Um, so I mean, in Europe, there's also uh, Shell, yeah, there and Royal Dutch, and there's a lot. I mean, one of the things that's happening, like during this time period, is that everybody's gearing up their, uh, converting their navies from steam to oil. Um, so people do want a very, very reliable source of oil. Oh, for their or many European powers are so they don't want to necessarily depend on their contracts uh, with America and that actually is the source of a lot of um, like exploitation in um, colonies or the reason that it's uh, like you know Churchill style foreign policy is like largely based on like okay well how do we make sure that we have oil for our Navy Oh, absolutely. I, the United States mostly just got lucky um, in the fact that their reserves were so obvious and easy to maintain, easy to obtain. And yeah. by the time this story is over, that does change a little bit, uh, which is where which is where this ends up rolling off to. Um, in the first instance, yeah. though, when um, when Europe needs the crude from America, it would be cheaper for them to just refi- or and just more economically viable to buy the crude, refine it in Europe. Uh, but that cuts all the refineries in Cleveland out of the mix. So what does Rockefeller do? He signs deals with the railroads, um, builds not really a union, but just a coalition alliance uh, with other refineries to get rebates from the railroads. The railroads are then reliant on their transit. And then they tell the rail, they basically strong arm the railroads to say that you're not allowed to ship crude oil on the same shipments as us. And by the way, we would like shipments on every train you ever send. So basically, uh, they they didn't they didn't sabotage any factories, they didn't incite riots. They did they do none of the like they do no espionage at lower levels. What they do is all cloak and dagger business operations. Like that's that is their modus operandi. Well, I'd heard that the, one of the things that they asked the railroad companies for was to spy on their competitors and report when they were shipping. Yes. And they did do that. Intelligent networks. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. They, um, but again, that's, that's a higher level business thing. They're not, they're not doing, (laughs) they're not going at the workers. Like they're not, they're not in such, yeah, there's, there's this different, I I keep trying to come up with a word for it because I'm not sure. I know there's a word for what I'm thinking of. It's, and I, I just keep thinking of communist instigation because that's what it ends up manifesting as half the time in the next century. But there is th- there's this idea of it being a handshake at the top as opposed to at the bottom. Um, mm-hmm. and, and that's everything Rockefeller does falls into that. I mean, and in the United States, as we were saying, um, there's not a ton of actual unionization going on in the United States, at least not compared with Europe, it seems like, from what you've told me. 
Um, even the oil men, every time the oil men attempt, and it, the oil men is a reference specifically to the people who produce the oil, not the people who refine it or transport it, specifically the people drilling the wells and working mm-hmm. the ground. Um, they have an awful time of it trying to stick together because there are so many new places that as the technology improves, you can get more oil from and you can just sneak in independent contractors on the side and they they completely undermine everyone's attempts to either unionize or form alliances to fight back against the refineries. And basically Rockefeller just sits on it. Like his his relationship with the railroads is so strong because the railroads are at least as corrupt as he is mm-hmm. in all the same ways. Um, he can just sit and wait until his competitors die. It's actually one of the reasons I think it took them so long to get involved in the, uh, the oil wells in Galicia. Like, first of all, his Rockefeller's vision is much more local, right? Like it's much more, focused on the united states than it is focused on creating a his global it, uh company in on the manufacturing side right it, on the it, sales side sure yeah that's yeah that's that, that's exactly the distinction i was going to make on the sales side absolutely um but he's they make no plays in europe until it seems absolutely necessary and it almost seems a little late mm-hmm. honestly Mm -hmm. And then, like, the other thing that he's famous for is keeping the cost of every little piece of the the machine very low, right? So if it's an an oil-producing Swiss watch, right, like, the cost of each component is very very low, and the transportation costs in this region are famously very high um, because they don't have um, consistent railroads. Which was actually um, the complaints, uh, one of the complaints that led to um, their fear that um, Slavic people would want to join Serbia. Uh And then, you know, and then Ambassador Franz Ferdinand was assassinated. Um, And then there was a war, Um, partly because they were not building railroads. So I, I wish I had had more time to investigate that because I'm sure like I can't pause, I can't understand why there wasn't a good I mean, everybody was so into railroads up to the point uh, up to like the moment of oil. Right. Like there was like that was the, the way that you had a modern economy. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, that is that actually if we could find a tag along uh, a tag along rumor or hearsay to. To talk about the railroads, that would be that would be an interesting next piece. That must be a conspiracy. I'm my I, I was leaning no on this one the whole time, but I would lean yes on on that one. Dead <laughs> somebody was <laughs> somebody was like stealing the money that they had put afford for railroads or something because for some reason these railroads didn't get built and i can't tell like how much of it is also maybe just maybe there's just some racism and they're not building railroads because they don't want to build railroads to dirty places and dirty pieces because uh you know some of the people uh i i feel like i've seen some commentators say that one of the reasons that the um the people are more empowered in Austria-Hungary is that um, the Austrians don't want the Hungarians to get more control over the government. 
And uh, because of that, there's kind of this internal power stru- struggle and uh, Franz Josef and uh, Franz Ferdinand like both uh, end up supporting um, supporting things that would, well, especially Franz Ferdinand um, d- is concerned about uh, the Hungarians being being too empowered in addition to being concerned with the stability of the empire. I don't know. I'm probably really wrong about that. I need to like really dig in. I mean, the idea that you could even be remotely right about that is as much evidence as anything that, um, that Rockefeller and standard oil probably don't have much to do with this because the politics that standard oil is involved in are the politics of stability. Um, they, they buy out Senate seats and they make contracts with railroads and they do everything they do is in the interest of this form of stability that Europe does not seem to exhibit. I mean, America's got its robber barons, but you can sort of rely on what they're going to do in a way, in a very perverse way that doesn't seem possible in most mm-hmm. other regions. And the problem with my particular research into this topic was that the book that I read um, was published in 1904. So Tarbell didn't obviously didn't get to investigate the events that occurred in 1904 in a book published in 1904. Uh, but nothing, nothing up to again, nothing up to this point suggests that this was other than an absolute love of destroying independent companies and getting rebates on railroads. Like those are Rockefeller's basically two favorite things in the world. Um, <laughs> there's there are accounts of him and his family. Yeah, and his family, but apparently they're they're like accounts. And the church? How could you forget the church? Pretty easily after reading this book. Um, <laughs> there's um, no, there's like accounts. There's like accounts. It's like I've never seen him excited except for when a deal closes. Well, like there's, and apparently then he's like dancing and stuff. But unless unless he really gets on the right side of a negotiation he's apparently just the the most absolute terrifying stoic um there's a there's a scene where he was in court and he was just basically lying the whole time but the um just blatantly lying about his affiliation with organizations that was provable in court at the time he was just lying cuz he knew he could get away with it um and um someone stood up for some sort of polemic and said, I, I don't have the line here precisely, but it was something like, never have I seen eyes like those or something like that. Um, apparently the stare that, he, if you've never seen a picture of John Rockefeller, apparently his stare is at least as menacing as it appears to be in those pictures. Uh, he was apparently <laughs> just a terrifying man to confront. Um, do, do you know what year the trust gets broken up? Which one? Uh, the monopoly of Standard Oil, right? There's a moment that oh, it becomes uh, like 19, Exxon. 1911, I believe. Gotcha. It turns into 34 different companies. And that's actually when Rockefeller becomes the richest man in the world. Uh, and that that bit of that bit of stock market fuckery is ingenious. But um, that's a tale for another time. And in any case, it doesn't – it it still suggests to me that uh, somewhere in 1903, I believe it's the last thing Tarbell writes about – uh, she does reference that um, Standard Oil sets up in Galicia because Galicia starts pumping out a bunch of oil. Uh, they set up a refinery there, and it, 
they suggest that Standard Oil is having a hard time even getting this factory operational mm-hmm. um, in a way that is completely out of character for the rest of their organization. Now, granted, Rockefeller's been out of the game for a little while. He's the president, but not the actual uh, CEO of Standard Oil at this point. The guy that I'm, yeah. once again, forgetting the name of is in control of it. But it's clear that the ties that made Standard Oil what it was in America don't apply in Europe. And they don't apply in Europe in a way that is totally, I mean, if you trace American intervention into foreign affairs, not talking in modern terms, although it really hasn't improved much. Um, America has always been bad at clandestinely intervening in other people's business. Like, we're just not good at the spy game. That is an interesting comment that I'm not going to dive into right at this second. Uh, because I, in the, um... Do you have another conspiracy you want to bring up? (laughs) Uh, no, I was going to point out that Standard Oil doesn't really get going in Galicia until 1909. Like, that's when it's moving in according to, uh, Oil Empire, Visions of Prosperity in Austrian Galicia. Um, where, um where um, production goes down, right? There's this glut of overproduction in Galicia um, around oil, and it's one of the problems that they have is that they're making oil too cheap and so on and so forth. So, And the strikes actually come at a time when the overproduction has become a massive problem, which was the supposedly the other motivator for Standard Oil to fund this strike, is that there's just too much oil coming out of the region. Um, but they don't really get going until... Um, until 1909, where uh, the local producers are struggling a lot more. Well, they survived times like that in America, so I'm sure they did okay in the long run. But uh, I can't <laughs> can't comment on that since I didn't I didn't read forward into the history, so I'm not sure. Gotcha. It just seems like a long wait to get rolling after you like I'm sure they survived the shock and still had um and I also don't know how much they had wells versus refineries or like what part of the oil oh, industry they, that they were in in Galicia. They didn't want to be in oil production. Uh they deliberately they uh, Standard Oil at its height only owned about 11% of the total oil production in the world when they owned about 90% of its refineries and the reason for that is very simple. They can control the railroads and the pipelines and the factories. They cannot control the production of oil. And they caught that mm-hmm. early and stayed the hell away from it and let other people speculate on it. And because Rockefeller was so good at negotiating prices, that was probably a really, really smart move. Mm-hmm. I think it would be prohibitively expensive to set up in this region. Like you were talking about when they did start going in, um, it's just hard to get anything done um because um i don't know i think we should speculate as to why it was harder because i don't know i mean like why was it harder to um get this kind of work done in europe versus uh in america you think couldn't tell you i mean america from what i read about american oil it was apparently trivially easy to produce the crude like it was bubbling in places they didn't have to try like they didn't even need machinery for the first handful of years to get at it apparently the reserves <laughs> were enormous um and i don't know if whether or not that was the case 
in Europe? I really think it has a lot to do with the transportation, um, the transportation issues. Like, I don't think it's just because if we're talking about the refining side of things, like, is there a reason that you wouldn't like, given that you have a refinery model, like a model of refineries in America already that you wouldn't establish a refinery in places where there was crude oil. It's fewer variables. I mean, it makes it makes life that much simpler, probably, to expatriate the oil once it's completely out of the out of the production line. I imagine it was a lot easier for Rockefeller to set up refineries in his home state, especially given that he owned a lot more of the politics nearby, mm-hmm. and they had to, and the Europeans had to buy the oil. I mean, they couldn't tariff the shit out of. Refined oil. They tried, and that was not successful because they needed the oil. They could, <laughs> like, they weren't making enough to cover their own. Exp- they weren't making enough to cover their own demands. Um, so yeah. there was only so much of a tariff you could put on it. So apparently, in 1909, they um, offered to subsidize the construction of large reservoirs. So that sounds like a. That sounds like a crisis of overproduction in 1909. Oh, there were, there um, were constant overproduction <laughs> problems everywhere because it was so yeah. – it, everybody was so anxious given how large the market was. Everybody wanted to have oil. I mean that shows up – that's still a problem today. I mean supply of oil massively outstrips demand of oil in <laughs> modern day um, and they had the same problem back then and thankfully – Back then, we had uh, John Rockefeller looking out for the stability of oil prices because otherwise, Lord knows, they would have been half of what they were. Um, <laughs> but that's uh, neither here nor there. No, it's it, it's oil production has always been a strange business because it it was burgeoning at the time and it was expensive and it was valuable. It was strategically valuable, but you also only needed a finite amount of it. and. People were finding more of it all the time. Mm-hmm. So it seems like in 1909 is when Standard Oil gets its uh, regular political operating procedures uh, in place. Because it says, always lurking in the shadows, Standard Oil saw its opportunity to gain a foothold in Galicia. Standard offered to subsidize the construction of large reservoirs, but in exchange demanded the option to purchase crude oil from local producers at a reduced price. By guaranteeing its own refinery control over Galician crude oil supply, Standard would have been able to block competing uh, refineries from purchasing Galician crude until unless they were willing to buy from Standard. The Austrian government was horrified at the prospect of a Standard oil monopoly at Galicia, in Galicia to nip any emerging relationship between Standard and Galician producers in the bud. The Ministry of Finance recommended discussions with uh, Galician uh, producers, which led to a new agreement revised in the producers' favor. Then they also tried to keep them out by um, by giving them higher freight prices. Like there was a lot of resistance to them because there was this whole conversation that they were having about like foreign money and foreign money coming in and controlling the wealth of Galicia and 
um, you know, Galicia is just another colony, which is interesting. That was one of the parallels that I kind of wanted to uh, think about in terms of like the energy producing regions in America, which I think in many ways act uh, like perform the same function as colonies because the you know the ruling class is essentially going in and exploiting the people and exploiting the landscape and pulling out everything it can and then selling it um and the profits don't stay in the region the profits end up in um like major urban centers uh which is where you know they build trump towers and stuff like that i don't know in the united states the the people who were exploiting oil, at least for the first couple of decades, were the people who ran out to do it. None of them were particularly rich in the first place. It was too – for the the production problem, it was too speculative. The, oh, sure. That's a good point. The rich That's people built point. the refineries. So – but then they become rich people or, you know, people I'm, – I'm, I guess I'm thinking more about coal than about oil. Um. But would you say the people in the area were enriched by oil? Because there are a lot of horrifying descriptions of what happens to a local environment when uh, people start producing oil there. Well, yeah, but, but no one, I mean, no one in air quotes were, of course, talking about the United States where people, people have technically always lived everywhere. But that's just, that's the nature of <laughs> American secondary colonial blindness. No, but not to get yeah, down see, that that's rabbit what hole. I'm there's, no, but that's exactly what I'm talking about. Sure. I mean, if we look at it from that perspective, then yes. Um, but to call, I, even in that context, to call the oil men a ruling class is a bit much. I mean, they are, they're overzealous pioneers, but the enforcement of that was entirely of their discretion. I mean, there's not one mention of Native Americans in Tarbell's account, so there's not much I can go on there. But um, That was another thing that I wanted to kind of look at and think about, because in Galicia, there are people of a lot of different ethnicities in one place, and that is another thing that makes it much more difficult to strike. Um, like, the socialists keep complaining that, like, the local people, like, won't, conceive of themselves as being of the working class because they already have divisions of uh between um between um like there are polish people and jewish people and ruthenian people i don't i'm really like not secure talking about this because like i'm sure that since this book was written in 2006 all of the words have changed and you have to say something else and like this is revealing my total lack of contextual understanding of what's happening but um you know in the book those divisions play a major role in a way that's not exactly analogous to uh, our contemporary american racial situation and for example apparently apparently uh the word for landlord in one of like the uh, local ways of talking was the same as the word for pole so you couldn't say landlord without like referring to a polish person so when you're talking to people and you're saying like unite as the working class like against the landlord against the landlords um but like landlord also means pole it's like very uh it's very hard to organize in that kind of situation. And I, I wonder what, um, 
what other stuff is going on in an American context around that and um, how that uh, played a role in the strikes because it seemed like, um, I don't know, I would have to investigate it more. Uh, but I didn't see anything major change on the ethnic um, on the ethnic front to make those divisions less harsh or less meaningful. Well, again, the unity question in <laughs> the unity question on the American side is probably much more simplistic. I mean, I'm virtually certain everyone who owns a refinery is a wasp. Like they're they are all. They are all of exactly the same cultural, ethnic background. I don't know about the oil men. They aren't described, but the pictures of everyone in charge look a hell of a lot like the people you expect them to look like. Sure. So there is some kind of division by class going on that isn't... Um Again, only on the refineries. I, can't sp- I, I cannot speak to the oil men. I didn't see enough description of them that way to know for sure Mm -hmm. there's just something interesting happening there where like once they don't own like once people don't own alternative like means to support themselves their relationship to like their needs as a class become more aligned than they were when they were beforehand where and there's like some great descriptions where people are the socialists are like, look, it's not enough to like beat up this one guy who did you wrong. Like you're, it's because the interests of your class are different from the interests of the class of people who are overseeing you. But because those um, were decided like ethnically, in a lot of cases, there's um, a lot of tension, and uh, because obviously, like there's like a huge amount of anti-Semitism at this point in time. Uh, and, and the popular depiction of Jewish people is of as people who uh, like are owning the taverns or like are overseers on these, uh, all of the various schemes. Um, e- even though that's not like an accurate depiction of like the role of Jewish people in the local economy. Um, and they, uh, Jewish people in this region, like do a bunch of different jobs and have a bunch of different, uh, kinds of roles. And I wonder if like, that's not also similar to how we conceive of, um, race in this era. Like when people aren't erased from it, like you remember recently when I started getting really obsessed with coal and Appalachia and I watched all those documentaries. Sure. I actually have no memory of that whatsoever. Oh, you know, you know how I like get on a tear and I just like learn everything I can about like one little yeah, place. Yeah, I, or... I, I know that part. That's why we're doing this right now. <laughs> yeah. So I was doing that with uh, like Appalachian coal and it's really hard to find like a good conversation where they talk about like. Um, race, like some of the people who are talking about the formation of of unions in around the coal mines of coal miners unions, we'll talk a little bit about how like uh, people lived in different camps. Like there were camps with uh, with black people in black families and camps with white families, um, like around the um, around the places where they would uh, be mining. Um, What's the era we're talking about? mid uh 19th century okay um 
So I'm guessing I, I talked about a couple different things at once. Um, but in any case, there is some segregation and like a lot of, uh, black people apparently like went into the mountains because they were like, um, looking for like a place to live and be free and like have work and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, just like leaving the, the, um, the more southern part and places where they had been slaves and leaving um, sharecropping and uh, like all of these various things that like bad systems that are designed to keep people down and um, going to live in the mountains instead. And in, in places like that whole narrative just like completely disappears. And I have no idea why, like, I don't know when or where like um, these mountains become so white. And I, so I feel like there's like, there's a lot more to the story about like resistance to oil and like resistance to um, labor exploitation. That's just not really uh, on the surface and would require like a lot of, um, digging to find because it's not a part of the historical narrative as much because of the the way the conception of um the conception of the people who are looking at these kinds of uh environments and researching these kinds of environments and moments in history where people organize and strike and so on and so forth is that your needs are more aligned as a member of the working class than they are different as members of different ethnic groups and whatever. Um, so there's not like always a good um, breakdown or accounting of how divisions by race played into um, the overall ability of people to strike or not to strike. Because even even that way of thinking about it, divisions by race, right? It's not like it, it's like it's this thing that's standing in the way of unity and not a representation of you having different needs as a different political class. And that's something that I don't see changing up to the strikes in um, 1904. And it's totally possible I missed something or I'm not remembering it because I read this book once two weeks ago. But um I, I just feel like if there's if there's anything that goes on the yes, this was funded by some kind of outside source. It's this fact that the ethnic tensions are in no way resolved by the time these strikes start, although they could be because people lost their land and uh, therefore had more similar interests as uh, the class of laborers than they did um, yeah, have different interests. Sorry, did that make sense at all? I'm not sure. You read the other book. Exactly 0%. What? The, the book I read contained exactly 0% race speculation. So. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, what I'm saying is that it didn't seem like the ethnic tensions died down before the strike. However, the economic situation changed for everybody in that region up to that strike, including workers who were, as a whole, more reliant on oil as a way of, as an industry, as a way of producing income for them and supporting their families. So they became more like what we think of as the working class because they were getting more and more dependent on this industrial process of extracting oil. So as they became more and more like the working class, they um, like 
like our conception of the working class and that they had to be there, right? They had no uh, very limited uh, freedom to like choose when they were going to work or like, um, you know, very restricted mobility and so on and so forth. Um, that's when the strikes start happening is, is at a time like even, you know, the socialists are pushing and pushing and pushing and trying to get people to strike and organize and get better sleeping conditions and, you know, better places to, um, better working conditions, safer working conditions. Um, and, um, you know, things like access to a, um, like some kind of medic or something and like access to, uh, a reading room and things that help you like improve yourself as well. Um, like they're pushing for all of those things and the workers just aren't interested until it becomes more like an industrial style working class. Um, so my, my theory is obviously like when they become this more industrial style working class is when they can organize and strike because that's when that's a sensible framework for thinking about their interests and when their interests become more similar, but when they're divided into classes, when they do different types of work based on, uh, their ethnicity, when they, um, have access to different, um, you know, they have different needs at different times based based on your ethnicity. Alicia, do you have some other specific thing that you are gnawing at that you want us to discuss in two weeks? Because it sounds like you are trying to drill down on a detail of this very, very hard. I just don't know how to, like, explain what I'm saying, and I'm not sure if I'm saying it right, and I'm anxious that I'm definitely saying it wrong, because I'm not, like, attuned to the specific, um, the specific, like, ethnic divisions of the region, and I don't know a lot about it, and, uh, but, like, the important point is that, like, the thing that I'm curious about is whether or not, like, that was also true in America, and we just don't know because of the way our histories are told. In fact, when you go back through this, you could cut out almost everything except for that little bit. <laughs> Which bit? This bit uh, where I'm saying, like, maybe there's a similar story in America to the one uh, where, like, as the working class becomes more of an industrial working class, there's a shift or uh, towards being able to ally across ethnic lines because you're, you become similar, like more similar as a uh, working class. Your political needs are more similar. Like what you advocate for is more similar. Your economic needs are more similar than they are when you're a more dispersed, um, when, when you have different economic needs based on your race or ethnicity because you're, you're, you know, the pressures and influences on you are different. I'm still trying to figure out how to tie this to the American side of it. The question, because it's the, the thing oh, is it, you, you're making it the the problem is you, what you're saying is a hunch still. Like, I'm yeah. not sure. I'm not sure what we're supposed to do with that. If you don't have something in particular, you want to explore about it. And I will, Definitely have to do research in order to explore it. Yeah. Since I know exactly do, nothing about it. Let's do that it. at some point for fun. Well, then maybe not figure out a damn maybe thing. Maybe not in public. What? 
uh, find a conspiracy. What? Find, well, yeah, you know, find sometimes we can talk to each other as friends. Find a race transition to social class disparity conspiracy sometime between 1850 and 1900 in America. And then we'll discuss that. That sounds easy. Well. I'll do it. Okay. I'll do it, but I do want to talk. <laughs> Watch me. All right. No, but I want to. I want to do. I want to talk about this spy thing. This spying thing in America is so inept at uh, influencing foreign governments. And no, no, no. I don't. I don't mean. Uh, I mean from. I, I mean from a bang for the buck perspective. I'm talking. I'm talking in terms of competence. We can throw insane amounts of resources at it. But we get comparatively little for it. This has been the argument against the CIA since its inception is that we are very, very mm-hmm. bad at that. Like, the CIA is well-funded. That's how it gets everything done. Do you think that there are more efficient intelligence agencies elsewhere in the world? Yeah, absolutely. Do you think uh, other governments run more efficient? They have to. They have less money. <laughs> they have less resources. <laughs> it's, it, most of it's a function of the fact that we don't live next to anybody. Like, that's... We, we have a shitload more actual barriers to cross in order to be chummy with other people, which is necessary for espionage. Um, well, I mean, the Zimmerman telegram. I don't know. What went that... to. Oh, in World War One, there's this great moment where I, I think it's like somebody in Germany sends a message to somebody in Mexico being like, hey, if, um, you know, if America joins this war, how about you're our ally? Does that sound cool? And, uh, but they, but the, uh, British intelligence is monitoring transatlantic communications. And, um, so they know that this telegram has been sent and they have to break it to the Americans. Man, that that makes British intelligence sound pretty good. That's what I'm saying, but like, do Amer- does American intelligence like not have uh, things like that in place? Like, absolutely not. I mean, they absolutely do. Yeah. Because why wouldn't you? Oh, absolutely. They they definitely do. But as a function of our lack of focus internationally, we do a much worse job at it. Like, we have Britain is concerned about the countries right next to it and is close enough to the countries next to it that it can actually do an effective job with that. We have to ship people across an ocean to do anything. And we try to do that everywhere. Like we don't care about Mexico or Canada the way we care about a lot of other countries around us. Like even South America is a stretch. Yeah. But I mean, Britain's not, Britain's interests aren't just, like, immediately what's surrounding them, right? No. But... Like, I mean, just because we're talking about oil um, and, like, natural resources and, like, you know, there's a region that's famous for wars for oil. And which one is that? We call it the Middle East. Yeah. Yeah. And who's and done a good job I, of espionage you know, in the Middle also, East? No one. Yeah, that's... That's true. <laughs> that's <laughs> no, true. Nobody. It's... 
argue I maybe argue Russia, but even they don't do a great job of it. So No, but why not? Like why not? Do we want to do a conspiracy on that? And here's here's another question. Why do we have the belief that intelligence in the Middle East is so bad? Like what form like I have no idea why I have that opinion or where it came from. No, I actually do know. It was a book about oil and they were talking about all of these like various <laughs> understand why you're laughing but, but it's just you turn on that so fast it's like oh this is a great mystery oh never mind it was a book i read <laughs> well i know that that's where my perception comes from but where does your perception come from to the point where we could just like laugh about it what? like it was an in joke that we both knew the answer to i mean mine i mean mine to the degree that it's an informed opinion about it at all is just that we we seem to so frequently have to switch sides. Like, generally speaking, you can maintain a balance of power by propping up a weak member or sabotaging a strong member of a state. We have to switch friends in the Middle East so frequently, it suggests we're doing a bad job of keeping track of what's going on. Did you know in the declassified torture reports, the CIA tortured people that it didn't realize were its own informants? That is also the kind of thing that comes out that suggests to me <laughs> that we don't have a great handle on this. Also, did you know that torture doesn't work? What? I Look, we have a lot of other conspiracies we have to get to before we can discuss the veracity or efficacy I know. of... I know. We we need to pick a really bullshit conspiracy next we that do. we can have fun with because like it has to just be like like Area fifty one because we need to establish that we're like we're just saying bullshit and nothing serious so that we can eventually do this other conspiracy. <laughs> what? <laughs> I mean, well, so that we can say things like torture is a terrible tool and you have to wonder why you would continue to use this terrible tool. And I actually have an interesting theory about that, but it's not a conspiracy. It just has to do with like bureaucracies and like organizational structures and like I, reporting to people and stuff like that. I but, mean, I was I was just going to blame the other minds fallacy like I always do. So I'm virtually certain that's why we torture people. Wait, can you can you connect this? The other mind's fallacy tells you that when you torture someone else, they are more likely to tell you the truth because they will understand through your use of power that you are powerful and are worth giving that information to in some sense. It's the same reason why we think that bombing civilians works in every generation. That is a mental defect of the way that you assess situations when you come under threat or pain without dying. Um, mm. We don't understand that, in fact, the exact opposite reaction occurs uh, because that's not the way our brains are wired to understand static entities like other human beings. Yeah. And this we should say torture doesn't work to get information. I bet it works for brainwashing. Bet you can brainwash people pretty effectively using oh, yeah. torture. 
Well, and there's there are really specific scenarios where things that could be construed as torture are effective, but there are narrow range of things, like a very narrow range like of things, what? and they're not related. They're related to they are they are actually the hypothesis that everybody use uses as the extreme example of torture being good. It is the ticking time bomb scenario. That's like the one time it works. Anytime you need to get more specific than that, anytime someone's holding on to information that they either – it basically the only time it is effective is if you know with confidence that the person that you're inter- interrogating has a factual thing they can tell you that you want to know. Um, that's it. And the problem is that's almost never the case. Like that's, that's virtually never the people that we torture. Like we torture yeah. people for information that we're not sure they have. And that's so they make shit up. That's so useless. they make shit up, yeah. and we have bad intelligence. Yeah, no, it's and that's not a conspiracy theory. That's just a fact. Well, I call it a conspiracy theory because it's a generally held consensus of the scientific community. So, I mean, there was a conspiracy to yeah. <laughs> there's a conspiracy to cover up torture. Yeah, there's probably a lot of those. Yeah. That's probably not an American phenomenon. I'll bet that happens <laughs> pretty much everywhere. I mean, so that's not really an interesting conspiracy to investigate. No, that one's not. I kind of want to do something on a um on an American weapons conspiracy to like be an off branch of Area 51 because there are so many random conspiracies that show up about secret weapons technology that America is pretending they don't have. And the entire premise of that is just crazy to me but i've never actually explored it like the idea that we already have like laser weapons that we just are pretending to not have and are not using but are testing somewhere that just seems like a secret we would not be capable of covering up no funny story about world war one winston churchill developed tanks and um or he was like involved in developing tanks because he really wanted to develop tanks uh, and they uh, kicked him out of the government before they were done uh, developing tanks. And he was pissed when they started using them because he was like, it's not ready. Like, this isn't a, these like, because uh, they weren't really like solid. I can't remember what it was about them, but something about them wasn't working. He was very angry because it was like his pet project that had been destroyed. And even the labeling of tanks as tanks is pretty funny. Because uh, it stands for water tanks. They're there to get water to the front line. That's why they're called tanks. Well, that's just silly. But that's mm-hmm. okay because Churchill got a tank named after him, so it's all right. <laughs> in a war that he was the prime minister they for. they let him fucking back in the government. <laughs> I'm sorry. I just like – and actually a lot of times that I'm like, oh, my God, no one's going to allow me to do anything again. I'm like, you know what? At least like – I didn't invade Gallipoli. That's just street cred. Yeah, well, I mean, but, you know, it was a catastrophe. Uh, a lot of people died horribly. We take those uh, too. Did you listen to that? Uh, a lot of governments got formed. And uh, Churchill got kicked out of the government. So every, every time like I think about this, I'm like, man, I could have been a way 
worse failure. I could be as bad as Winston Churchill and I'm not. Like, I could have failed as hard as Winston Churchill did and I didn't. And they let him back into the government for some reason. There's still time. You can still anyway. fuck this up a lot. You can Yeah, you that's can make what I'm saying. Maybe I need to try to, like, fail harder. Although, I never, I don't even want to succeed the way Winston Churchill succeeded. <laughs> let alone fail the way he failed. <laughs> Anyway. You don't want the glory or the shame. All right. <laughs> what were you saying? What? Oh, no, no. I was just going to wrap this up. <laughs> oh, I actually, I kind of want to cap this. I want to cap this by making the intro for this. Alicia, why are we studying conspiracies in the first place? I'm sorry. Go I, ahead. I, I'm losing tons of, I'm getting an obnoxious amount of drops here. I don't know what the deal is. It's because we said CIA too many times. Almost certainly. I can believe that. So, Alicia, what's cool about conspiracies? What the hell like are we talking Bloody about? Mary. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Go ahead. Go Why ahead. are we talking about conspiracies? Why are they cool? Okay, conspiracies are interesting because there's no clear classification of when something becomes a conspiracy theory. So, if we were to define conspiracy and conspiracy theory, how would we define it? It's a theory about something that happened or is happening in the world that relies on a secret conversation between powerful people or between a group of people in order to create something, right? It's like a secret deal. Um, however, the way that people talk about them is as if they're impossible um, because... Um, I don't know why. There's a reason, surely, that the the way people talk about conspiracies is that um, is as if they're impossible. However, when people do these things publicly, they're just called deals or you know governance or business or you know whatever. Um, but somehow, when it's a little bit secret, uh, it's like completely insane for you to even imagine. However, as you learned while investigating this topic, it's not uncommon. For there to be a secret deal between, say, a businessman and another businessman that, uh, or like an entire people special treatment, or like dozens and dozens and dozens, and do it's it's a little insane what was going on in the 1900s. But mm -hmm. so, in our investigation of conspiracy theories, we should be thinking about how we can evaluate things where. There is either very little evidence or a strong reason to suspect that the evidence has been tampered with. Um, and you have to rely on um, things other than direct evidence to figure it out, like your reasoning capability. With the ultimate goal of reaching conspiracy level 10, which is where we attempt to verify a fact of any kind about Vladimir Putin. I think that should be our <laughs> final episode is to once and for all state something in the affirmative about Russia's president. Well, so, he like I know that he likes to ride horses. Look, don't don't say that out loud. We got to save that. We got to save that for the final episode. He's very convinced. He's very persuasive on a number of topics. On liking horses. Mhm. Mm I I've never seen a video of him talking about horses. But I have um, seen a video of him um, talking about being convinced that there were weapons of mass destruction. 
by the United States. Was that a conspiracy? Uh, some, some would say so. We're going to have to wait to find out. We could actually totally do that as a capstone course in conspiracy theories. That is definitely one of the most obnoxious ones to research. So, The weapons of mass destruction one. Yeah. There's a couple layers to that one. Well, wait. Yeah, what would be the which thesis would we evaluate? It would be how many people knew versus believed. Yeah. Okay. But what are we going to do next time? I have no oh, yeah. earthly idea. But I well, think I mean this was fun. This was historical. I got to learn a lot about Galician oil, which I like. We could we could pick a World War One conspiracy. I love World War One conspiracies. All right. If you've got a favorite mm-hmm. one, otherwise we can wait and uh, declare it later. But uh, I have to think about it. I will. I will dig around and think about it. I mean, I just like happen to know the most about World War One for whatever yeah. fucking weirdo reason. Probably because um, you but live I'm near fine Thomas. Learning. But <laughs> no, I have read way more books on it than than oh. he has. Okay. You can you can ask him. He defers to me on many questions about World War. <laughs> I believe you. We'll come up with a conspiracy that we can investigate, and we will do that in due course. Okay. Yeah, that sounds good. In the meantime, I need to go take a nap. So, Alicia, thank you for being part of the machination log. Thank you. That was. I'm glad we did it. Oh yeah. I was fine for a first episode. There's plenty to iron out in the format. I think we need to do something more like, totally. I think we need to do something a little juicier to the next one. You know, where there's like a secret history of organizations that we have to trace. And then we go, something smells fishy here. And we have to decide who's Molly and who's who's Mulder. I, you should have read my book then, because that book is just fucking backroom deals between about 17 different entities. So I would almost be interested in having another week to research and then re-recording this with like stronger evidence. But I don't know. I also did feel like it was important for us to just jump in. So. Oh, abs- absolutely. I am also, I'm not entirely convinced I'd come to a different conclusion. I don't like, I have a couple of leads that I would look at for like oh, elaboration, totally. but I'm, I'm virtually certain I'd come to the same totally. conclusion. Totally. Totally. Same. Okay. I'm going to go have dinner. Cause all, right. all I've had today is yogurt and carrots and I was already prone to being delirious. So I'm going to go watch Scandal. All right. I'll let you go do that. I'll put flowers in a vase for my grandma, I think. It's probably what I'm going to do. But Oh, are you going to a Christmas thing? What? Yeah, Christmas. It's a Christmas present. Oh. She doesn't like material objects, so I'm going to get her material objects that she can throw away. Cool. Cool. Edit. Please edit this out if... Like, don't keep this part in. 